Bible Interact is a group of Bible scholars and biblical archaeologists who promote the Hebraic nature of Scripture and view the two Testaments as one unified message. They explain how they use a first-century approach to searching the Scriptures, and they share their methods and discoveries for discussion and dialogue. They invite your comments and participation on BibleInteract.tv, where you can also find more teachings, self-study quizzes, webinars, and interviews. Today, I'm going to do something a little different. If you stop and think about it, the Bible is composed primarily of narratives, especially the Hebrew Scriptures, but also the New Testament as well, especially in the Gospels of the New Testament. Now, Christianity has turned the Bible, in my humble opinion, into theology. And we have a tendency even though we're exploring the Hebraic roots of Christianity, we have a tendency to go in and treat it almost as philosophy. You know, we have all these ideas, what are the, you know, what's the underlying meaning? But God taught in large part through narrative, which really is a story, that's what it is. But the biblical stories because of the artistic nature of the biblical language, are teeming with rich and prophetic meaning. They are not simply stories. The Bible is not simply a history book. Approximately 40, that's 40, 40% of the Hebrew scriptures is narrative. And if you really begin to look into the artistic nature of the language, you're going to see how rich and meaningful these narratives really are. So what I'm going to do today is I'm actually going to go into a narrative in the New Testament. But we're going to have to look at the Hebrew Scriptures to really understand this narrative in the New Testament. I'm going to look at the Apostle Peter. Everybody knows Peter. He was one of the original 12 apostles. But I want you to know and to consider that there are many more apostles than the original 12. As only one example, Paul was an apostle called by God for a specific mission. Now we're going to go in and we're going to look at what an apostle is, and we're going to have to go to the Hebrew Scriptures to really understand it. I am encouraging you in this session to consider that you can be an apostle also. You know, there's a tendency to think, oh, there, there were those 12 apostles and they were kind of superhumans and we're not superhumans, we can't do it. But I want you to consider that you can be an apostle also. Now let's start by looking at the Greek word apostle, which is apostolos, from which we get apostle. Now listen carefully because there's another Greek word that has the same root and sounds very similar. Okay, apostle is apostolos. Epistle or letter is epistole. The endings are different. Os is masculine, a is feminine, but the same stem is there. And, and they both mean something that is sent. That's what it means. So a letter is a, is a written document that you send. It's an epistle. It's a written document that you send. An apostle is a person whom God sends. That's all it is. God is sending that person, and we're going to see God is sending that person for a specific purpose. 
Now, what we need to do is we need to take a look at the the equivalent in the Hebrew scriptures for our Greek word apostolos. You can do that because the Septuagint was a translation from the Hebrew scriptures to Greek done about 150 to 200 years before Christ. It was done in Alexandria because many Jews were no longer living in Israel. They were living in what was called the Diaspora, which was lands outside of Israel. So what we can do is we can see that the Septuagint was tra- was translated from the Hebrew into Greek. So we can look at the Septuagint, see where the Greek word apostolos is used, and then and, and then look at the original Hebrew word for which it was translated, and that way we can find the Hebrew equivalent word. Now, uh, the Hebrew equivalent word, by the way, is the the verbal root. Now, in Hebrew, you you start with a three-letter verbal root, and then from the verbal root, you you can make many... Uh, different words. From the verb, you can make a noun, you can make an adjective, you can make an adverb, you can do all kinds of things from the verbal root. The verbal root in this case is shalach, which means to send. That's all it means. And the shalachim are those who are sent. So, we can look in the Hebrew scriptures for the concept of the shalachim, which I strongly encourage you to do before returning to the New Testament. Because after all, the New Testament was composed by Jews before the New Testament was written. And for these Jews, the only Hebrew scriptures, uh, the only uh, holy scriptures were the Hebrew scriptures. So in working the New Testament, I always encourage you to go back to look into the Uh, the uh, Hebrew scriptures before returning to the New Testament but always return to the New Testament with that that Hebrew understanding and you'll get a much richer understanding of the New Testament. So in the Hebrew scriptures, which is the Old Testament, the Shalachim were sent by God. We also find in the Hebrew scriptures that the Shalachim were called by God. They were not only sent, but they were called Calling means that they were called to a specific mission. God called them. Now, the the prophets, all of the prophets were called by God. And they were called by God to speak for God. That's what a prophet does. A prophet speaks for God. His actions are a form of communication, a form of speaking. So the prophet is one who speaks for God. And that's the calling of the prophet. And all the prophets were shalachim. They were sent by God. We also see that those who held office, offices in the temple were shalachim. They're identified as shalachim. They, they were sent by God for a specific purpose, a specific mission to serve in the temple. We also see in the Hebrew scriptures that all the patriarchs were sent by God. And Moses was sent by God. And the judges, after they entered the land, all of the judges were sent by God. So this concept of being sent now is is being carried through into the New Testament. Peter was one of the original 12 apostles. I'm going to try to convince you that you can also be an apostle in this day and age, and that would mean that God is sending you for some specific mission or calling. All right, let's look now at, uh, at Paul. Paul declared, I mean, Paul was an apostle. We see that in scripture. Paul was also an apostle. So there were the 12 original apostles and Paul was also an apostle. 
And if you go in and, and take a look at how Paul describes himself as an apostle or how others describe him as an apostle, you'll get a richer understanding of, of the role of the apostle, and that's what we're looking for, the role of the apostle. So Paul says, I am an apostle to the Gentiles. That means he was called by God for a specific purpose to speak the word of God that, about, about Yeshua and his resurrection and, and that he was the promised Messiah, to speak that message to the Gentiles. A Gentile is simply somebody who's not a Jew. That's all a Gentile is. The person is not a Jew. And then uh, we read in, in that one was in Romans 11.13. In 1 Corinthians, at the beginning of the letter, Paul says, I am called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So what's happening here is as an apostle, you serve under your Lord Yeshua. However, it is God the Father who has made the call. The call has not been made by Yeshua. The call has been made by the Father. And that call places you under the lordship of Yeshua in some kind of specific mission. And then again in 1 Corinthians, um, I think this is an important one. Listen to this carefully. Paul says, I am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He was actually out determined to kill Christians. He was on the way to Damascus to, to you know bring them to trial and... And, and to be killed, you know. So, you know, I think the message here is that it doesn't matter what kind of life is behind you. You know, were you a murderer? Were you a thief? Were you um, a, a very deceitful, dishonest? You know, any of those things. I mean, after all, um, David caused the death of Bathsheba's husband. He was a murderer. He was a murderer. Now, God didn't forgive him for the murder. He had to pay the penalty for that murder. But God still gave him the gift of life. And so, and, and David still belonged to God and went, went forward to, to serve in the role of king, a very important role to play, even though he caused the death of Bathsheba's uh, husband. So, so no matter what your past life looks like, you can be called for a specific mission by God to serve under your Lord Yeshua. And finally, um, I, I picked out this one because it, it fascinated me. Paul said, I was appointed a preacher and apostle and a teacher. So he had different roles. Uh, the preacher um, holds forth the gospel, the good news, you know, the Yeshua is the Messiah. He's been resurrected out from the dead. You too can be resurrected out from the dead if you believe in him. That's the, the preacher who brings, who preaches, brings the, the, the good messages. All right. Then the apostle we're going to look at. And the teacher is one who takes the word of God and, and makes it understandable. Doesn't interpret it. You have to do the interpretation, but it, 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 it clarifies and, and brings, it makes the word of God, you know, uh, take on light and sparkle. All right? Now, for the rest of the session, I'm going to look at Peter and how he learns from the Master Yeshua. So this is the specific thing I'm going to do in this session. In other sessions, I'll do some other things with Peter. But in this particular session, I simply want to look at how he is learning from Yeshua because in this narrative, in this story, we can learn how 
you know, how we can learn from our Master Yeshua also. Now, the first thing, of course, is when Peter became um, a disciple. And um, uh, Yeshua said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, this is not an apostle. This is a disciple. And I have to explain to you what a disciple is. A disciple is simply one who makes Jesus Lord in their lives. The person makes a commitment to submit to Yeshua, to serve under the lordship of Yeshua. Lord means boss. That's what it means. And you submit to the boss, and you obey the boss, and you do the work of the boss. That's what it means to be a disciple. Now, you have to become a disciple first before you can be an apostle. An apostle is one who is sent with for a specific task. First, you have to be a disciple. You have to commit yourself to follow the Lord, to obey him, to make him Lord in your life. All right? Now, so the first principle we see is that you have to be a disciple first before, before God can call you for a specific uh, task. Now, another principle I think is very important is that Peter was a very humble fisherman. And I think this goes along with it doesn't matter what your former life was like. I mean, you don't have to be well-educated with many degrees. You don't have to be a great speaker. You know, you don't have to be a leader. God only sees the heart. And and if you have a heart that hungers to grow close to God, you will first become a disciple, and then you will be in line for God to call you to some specific task. Now, let's look at the narrative. And in the narrative in Matthew, I'm going to take you to Matthew, where uh, Peter walks on water. And I'm in Matthew chapter 14, and I'm going to read to you verses 24 through 29. So if you have your Bibles handy, I suggest you turn to Matthew chapter 14, verses 24 through 29. You remember that Yeshua um, had, been, had been teaching, and then he told his disciples to get into a boat and go to the other side, and he would follow. But then it says in verse 24, uh, the boat was already many stadia away from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. In other words, you know, in the Sea of Galilee, it's a small sea, but very quickly, sort of out of nowhere, can come a very sudden storm, and the storms are quite violent. And that was what was happening here. And in the fourth watch of the night, Yeshua came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, now this is important here, they were frightened, saying, it is a ghost, and they cried out for fear. Now, <clears throat> Um, Yeshua is going to speak to them and he's going to say, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Now Peter is the only one who responds and, and, and all his fear goes away. And I think that this is an important principle for us to learn because um, it's not just fear, it's um, a feeling of inadequacy. We can't do it. Peter is the one who said, huh, walk on water? Lord, can I walk on water? I can walk on water. Let me walk on water. You know, it, it, so it, the fear is the thing, that, that the contrast to fear is trust. When you trust in God, when you trust in the Lord Yeshua, you are so 
committed to what he is saying that you're not going to you're not going to hesitate you're not going to question you're not going to be afraid you're not going to think i can't do it so the the opposite of fear is trust in in this case in any in, in any case so uh peter said okay um lord if it's you command me to come to you on the water and yeshua said well, okay come <laughs> and peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward yeshua so the story is teaching us it's teaching us here because then what happened was peter started to fear and when he started to be afraid i mean he looked around and he looked at the water and he looked at the wild waves and the wind and everything and he started to be afraid and then he started to sink but the next thing is really important because what did peter say peter said lord save me so Peter was still in that mode of total trust, total believing, and in fact, the Lord took his hand and, and, and he was fine. And the Lord said, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So that we're learning here from the narrative. And, and I think, you know, you've heard this probably in the churches, this teaching. So let me, let me take you a little farther here. Um, I, what I want to do now is um, I want to make a comment because... I know people who have who believe that if they believe strongly enough, they can make something happen. If you believe that you're going to be healed, you'll be healed. If you believe that you can move a mountain, you can move a mountain. Because it actually says that, you know, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible to you. But there's what we've just learned in this narrative with Peter is that it must be the will of God. It cannot be your will. You cannot make yourself God by the strength of your believing. Now, how do you know it's the will of God? Well, I'll just, you know, make a few comments about this. So, a few people say they get audi an audible voice. I don't. I have a sudden whole thought in my mind. So there are different ways that you can hear from God. You know, maybe something happens and, and you look and you say, that can't be an accident. It I must be hearing from God. So there are many different ways to hear from God, and you've got to have your own relationship to hear from God. But you can't do these miracles unless it is the will of God. You can't make it your will. So what have we learned about Peter walking on the water? We've learned that you have to be a disciple first. A disciple has no fear because he or she trusts completely in the Lord and obeys him. And then I think you have to come to the point in your life where if the Lord commands you to move a mountain, you have to have the confidence and the faith that you can do it. So you have to know it's the will of the Lord, but once you know it's the will of the Lord, you, you just totally believe that it will happen, and it will happen. Now the next narrative I'm going to take you into is when uh, Yeshua took his disciples up on a high mountain to Caesarea Philippi, and he asked them, who do you say that I am? And um, Yeshua was the, um, not Yeshua, uh, Peter was the only one who answered. And he said, you are the Christ, meaning the Messiah, the son of the living God. All right, now, I'm going to stop here because there is so much meaning in this. First of all, Caesarea Philippi 
was up in the Mount Hermon range in the northern part of Israel. It was first a Greek site, and then when the Romans took over, it became a Roman site. There was a cave that was very, very, very deep, and in the depth of that cave, there was a spring, and the water came up from that spring and flowed out. And the Greeks and the Romans thought that it, it was kind of it was it, that that water was coming from the underworld, and it was a it has a magical power, and if you go there. Um, um, you, you can see that that cave and that spring and and the remains of of what was a, a major uh, a Roman um, site where people would come to, to be healed. And then there's also an artistic uh, reconstruction drawing of what it looked like. You can get a, a sense of it. Now, um, let's go to here to you are the Messiah, the Son of the Living God. Well, the Messiah they were Scripture was was prophesying a Messiah, but but they thought that the Messiah was coming to defeat the Romans and establish the kingdom of God, which is not what happened. And that's why uh, Jews today are, uh, are very reluctant to believe that this is the Messiah, because why would the Messiah be killed? You know, it's, it somehow didn't fit what they were expecting. Now, the, the living God, you can understand, the living God is the Father. Yeshua is the Son of the living God. So we have the Father and we have the Son. I am going to stop and talk about the term Son of God because I, I just was working on it and I was um, uh, I was a little startled to tell you the truth by what I found. So I'm going to share that with you. Start in the Hebrew Scriptures. That's what I always tell you to do. Go back to the Hebrew Scriptures. What was the understanding of a Son of God in the Hebrew Scriptures before coming back to the New Testament? Amazing. The Hebrew scriptures refer to sons of God only four passages, only four. And in every single one, those sons of God are spiritual beings. The first time, the Nephilim were on the earth. They were the sons of God who went in to the daughters of men. And they're some kind of spiritual beings. They're, they're giants, they're not they're not like humans they're giants or some kind of spiritual beings in job you get two passages one talks about the sons of god came to present themselves before the lord and satan also so satan and the and sons of god satan was a son of god he they were they were sons of god they were spiritual beings came to present themselves before the lord and then that was in job 1 6 and verse 2 1 it's repeated in verse 2 1 then in job 38 7 when the morning stars sang together, all the sons of God shouted for joy. So this is in the heavens. The morning stars are singing. The sons of God are shouting for joy in the heavens. These are spiritual beings. And lastly, we get a passage in the Psalms. Um, the, the first three are B'nai Elohim. This one is B'nai Elim. But the sages have determined that Elim is a shortened form of Elohim. So it's also the sons of God. And we read there in Psalm 29, verse 2, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. And then it goes on to talk about, um, it's it's the sons of the mighty is why it's translated as, but it's B'nai Elim, the sons of God. It's the sons of God. And they're in holy array. So they're, they're in the heavens. They're in holy array. Now we come to the New Testament, and Yeshua is clearly not a son of God, but the son of God, so the son of the Father. And at his baptism, the, a, a voice spoke from the heavens, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So 
clearly Yeshua is identified as a son of God. Now, if the sons of God and the Hebrew scriptures were spiritual beings, then we can see that Yeshua is also a spiritual being. We can see that. But here's the hooker. Scripture in the New Testament also says that you are sons of God. How do you make sense out of that? It's easy to say, oh yes, Yeshua is a spiritual being. We can see that. But you come to you as a son of God, what does that mean? Well, let me explain it this way. This is the way I like to explain it. We read in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So whatever was the nature of God, we know the nature of God was holy. And we know that God is spirit. We know that. So that the nature of God is holy in spirit. And whatever the nature of God was, that nature of God was in Christ. Now, in Colossians 1.27, we, we hear about a mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So whatever the nature of the Father is, it was in Christ. And that same nature is in you through your faith in Christ. That nature is holy. That nature is spirit. Now, calling you sons of God. Let's, let's look at this. It has to do with the Hebraic sense of time because you are sons of God by promise. You are sons of God by birth. And at that birth, you became sons of God, but now you can walk as sons of God also. 